Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a quick note about the foundation. We're working on our anxiety and depression uh, massive literature review. The goal here is to go through thousands of different sources, uh, peer-reviewed papers, books, lectures, interviews, etc., put it all together into a low or no-cost resource for people that suffer from anxiety or depression and put that on offer, you know, to help people. Uh, the goal here is to try to find every treatment possible and, again, put it all into one curated place. So if you have interest in looking into that, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Nancy Moran. She's the Warren J. and Viola May Rayner Chair, uh, Professor of Integrative Biology, all at UT Austin, uh, University of Texas at Austin. So we're going to talk about her work. So Nancy, thank you for coming. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah. Well, tell me, um, offline, we mentioned just a few, you know, words about bees and aphids and different things. Uh, what's your research about currently? What are you working on? Well, we still work on these sort of two main systems. Um, and the thing that joins it, we're studying how bacteria or just microorganisms in general interact with insects. And we sort of use the insects really as kind of a system of just looking at how an animal interacts with with bacteria, especially, but microorganisms in general. So people have probably read about microbiomes and how microbes interact with humans, but really they interact with all kinds of organisms, including insects. And so our focus has been on that in insects, and specifically on these two very different kinds of insects, bees and aphids. Yeah, so I guess maybe we'll start with um, with bees. So where do they tend to pick up microbes and, you know, has anyone uh, sequenced the bees microbiome to see what it looks like? Yeah, so we we started on this kind of project, I think it was 2007. People who have memories that long might remember that that was the very beginning of this thing called colony collapse syndrome, where some bee colonies were suddenly dying that, that year. It was kind of an unexpected thing that happened and the beekeepers, and no one really understood why. So there was some effort um, to look for the causes. And that's when I first got involved in this and um, a major effort that was people at a number of different universities um, was to get a bunch of these samples of the bees, the sick bees and the healthy bees, and then to just do a lot of sequencing to see if maybe there's a new disease agent or something like that. 
maybe a new disease agent, some kind of virus or bacterium had entered, you know, the U.S. and gotten to our beehives. Well, it turned out that wasn't the case. There wasn't any one disease. Um, there were a lot of different diseases, but there wasn't any anything particularly new uh, that year. But what happened was out of that study, it became apparent that every honeybee colony and every single honeybee um, worker, um, so that all the bees you see flying around, has within them kind of a really consistent set of bacteria, about eight species of bacteria. And every bee has the same eight. And they make up almost everything in the bee. And those bacteria don't live anywhere outside the bee, right? So they're really kind of a bee thing, a little bee bacterial community that's sort of part of being a bee. And we got interested in that and kept working. What what kind of... um bacteria have you observed in bee microbiomes any i'm sure there's probably crossover with people but i'm sure there's bacteria that are radically different as well right mainly there's no crossover with people these are pretty much um bacteria that live only in the honeybee in the gut and they go so they're basically about eight species they were new species to science um so you know we've we spent the last decade you know kind of doing just fundamental work growing them and um, sequencing their genomes and you know, seeing what effects they have on the bees. But these, they're very distinctive to bees and specifically to honeybees. So they've kind of evolved with bees over a long period of time. Well, I would think a bee's microbiome would change radically as it pollinates throughout the year. You know, if they're doing almonds in a cold climate, let's say in Northern California. Has anyone looked, okay, before they pollinate almonds, after they do it, blueberries before, blueberries after, et cetera, like throughout pretty, the year? Pretty much, it, it, that's, the, that's the striking thing. It really doesn't matter. Um, I mean, of course, they ingest different bacteria when they when they forage in different environments and stuff. But those bacteria don't live in the bee. They just kind of go through and, you know, they're part of the food, really. Um, so I would think that the um, the bacteria, I guess maybe they're multipurpose. They can produce the same metabolites or short chain fatty acids or whatever is needed for the bee, whether the bee is eating A, B or C, right? Right. And, and one thing to remember is bees always eat nectar and pollen, right? So they're even though those do differ a little bit between plants, there's a lot of similarities too. They have a pretty narrow diet when you think about it, you know, I mean, pollen and nectar. And so almond pollen will differ from, you know, some other pollen maybe, but but mostly it's very similar. The same kinds of components are in there. And um, one thing we've um, discovered about maybe one of the interesting things about what these bacteria do in the bee, it's, it's really got a lot of parallels to the human microbiome, um, but these bacteria can break down um, the cell wall of the pollen. So traditionally, when people have looked at nutrition of bees, they thought, well, they use nectar, that's sugar, so that's their energy, and then pollen, that's the protein, because the pollen grain has protein in it. So there's energy and protein, and that's what the bees need. But it turns out that the, the cell wall of the husk on the outer coat of the pollen, that's not protein, that's made up of these complex carbohydrates, basically fiber, we would call it, you know, um, things like hemicellulose and pectin, those things that plants make. And there's a lot of energy stored in there, but it's very hard to digest. Usually animals can't, like insects or mammals, cannot digest those complex fiber polysaccharides. And so it turns out these bacteria can, they have enzymes that they secrete that break down those components. So the bee can get energy from the pollen um, from the husk of the pollen, not just from nectar. What about the queen bee's microbiome versus workers versus like, maybe it's the same thing, drones? 
know, the different types of bees in a hive. Has anyone looked again at their different microbiomes at the same time to see if they do differ? Yeah, so that's a really interesting thing um, because if you compare workers to queens, um, and we've done that, a few people have done it, very consistent results. It turns out workers, they have, like I said, this very consistent, you know, ape species of bacteria. They, you know, they live in a certain places in the gut and they're, you know, they're localized in a certain way. The queen is totally different. She doesn't have any of them. And she actually has a sort of a smaller microbiome um, and really doesn't seem to have this dominant kind of consistent microbiome that, that the workers have. And so it's really interesting because, you know, genetically, you probably know it, uh, but the queen and the workers, they're the same. They're, you know, the, it's only a developmental um, pathway that switches between them. Um, genetically, they're similar to each other. So there's something different about the queens. And it makes sense, I think, because the queen is an egg-laying machine, right? She's Her purpose is to lay eggs um, and to just keep laying them to increase the colony numbers. And the workers are the ones that deal with all the food and digestion and all the processing of food, which is what the microbiome is involved in. Has anyone looked again across, if I have two hives, you know, and each one has its own queen and I sample them, do they differ amongst the hives as well? The general, so what it's pretty simple. Like there's these eight species and every bee has the same eight species. So at that level, it looks the same from one hive to the next. But within the species, I'm talking about the bacterial species, you know, within the worker bee gut, within each of those species, there's strain variation. That's a lot more fine scale. You know, so closely related strains, they might differ genetically a little bit and that might affect the bee. So at that level of strains, there are probably some differences. It's a little harder to look at because you really have to sequence whole genomes to find these small differences. But at the species level, it's it's really consistent across individual bees and across um, hives in, around the world. I mean, that's sort of what, when we first looked at this a little in 2007, I mean, it was really striking. I mean, bees from Europe, from Asia, from Australia, from the U.S., they all had those same eight species and, you know, very distinctive. And so that's really what got me interested in this to start with was, you know, this seemed like something special about these particular set of species. Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. What about the uh, you know the metabolic pathways or I guess the metagenomics of the eight species? Has that been looked at and do people understand what role these eight species are playing? You know, what metabolites they're producing in exchange for the food they get from the bee? Yeah, um, there's been quite a bit. Um, so, so the eight species, are, they differ from one another. Some of them are involved in, like I mentioned, breaking down the components of the pollen cell wall. So there's a big complex molecule called pectin, which is in plant cell walls. And it is, has many, many different kinds of chemical bonds. 
And each one of those takes a different type of enzyme to break it down, right? So there's this whole set of enzymes that you need if you're going to, if you're going to digest pectin. But ultimately, if you digest it, it produces all these sugars and those have energy. Those are a source of energy, but they're kind of weird sugars like xyla. They're not like glucose and sucrose that we, that we use in our diets. They're odd sugars like arabinose and xylose so on. And, and um, so usually animals cannot use those odd sugars, but, but these bacteria can, they can ferment those sugars and present, they then can basically generate uh, like short chain fatty acid sources of energy that can be absorbed by the bee. So that part of the metabolism is a really dominant feature in the microbiome. And then there's a lot of other things going on. Um, you know, we, they can, besides using these sugars, they, they can make all of the amino acids. Um, so it's a, that the bee might need in its nutrition. So it's unclear, but possibly these bacteria actually provision amino acids that might be limiting in the bee diet because they have the pathways for making these. So, so we, we have sequenced many genomes and we can reconstruct the metabolism, you know, for all of these species. The harder thing is seeing what do they really do in the bee, you know, putting them back in the bee and looking at how do they really affect a living bee. So that's, that's a hard kind of experiment, but we try to do those too. When we were talking about the different types that, you know, I mentioned the queen and the workers, but what other uh, types of bees are there in a colony? Yeah, so they have different microbiomes, you know, the babies and the... Yeah, so the larvae, again, so the key thing about the honeybee microbiome is it's in the adult workers. So those are the ones that most people see flying around. They're in the nest. They're, they make up all the bees that you see. But, of course, their early life is spent as a larva inside the honeycomb. And at that stage, as a larva, they have a very different microbiome, very small microbiome. It's very different from that of the adults. They don't have any of the ones that the adults have. And so they really only acquire this more distinctive microbiome when they emerge as adults. So they, you know, they, they go through the larval stages and they're being fed this very um, specialized food from the nurse bees. Um, then they pupate within the honeycomb there. And then they emerge, they come out of the cells, and then they're adults. And so on the very first day that they emerge as adults, they start to acquire the microbiome from the other workers, from their, which are their sisters in the hive. So basically, they, they get colonized immediately. You know, Within hours of coming out, they start to be colonized with the microbiome. And they get it through social interactions. Basically, it's, they, they get it from other bees that have it. Has anyone looked at, uh, you know, if there's anyone left in a colony after colony collapse disorder and sampled the microbiome of like maybe even the dead bees that are left or are the microbes gone by then? You know, what if um, a bee was attacked by varroa mites? Has anyone looked at the microbiome then to see, you know, how it changes in the bee where the varroa mite itself, it probably has its own microbiome too. Yeah. So it, there's not big changes. So I think one thing that happens is that yeah, if, if a if a worker is really stressed, um, say it's new, maybe it's starving or it's attacked by mites, varroa mites, or has a viral disease, then the microbiome will kind of start to go haywire and it'll just look more er, basically contaminated with a lot of random bacteria from the environment. But that's usually a very brief stage before the bees just dead, right? <laughs> and so because honeybees will just rather quickly die if they go into this very stressed state. So if we um, have like sick bees um, that maybe have nosema infections, that's a, another kind of parasite in the intestines of bees. 
they can have microbiomes that look very weird and that are starting to be kind of chaotic with kind of random bacteria. But that's we don't sample those very often, mainly because I think they just die very quickly and you don't really capture that moment very often. Oh, but I was going to say, has anyone been able to, again, try to sample a bee or a couple of bees uh, at a time when their colony, let's say, has collapsed or there's radical changes going on? Yeah, we have. At the very beginning, we did that. And, you know, they mostly will have the same microbiome for the most part. Um, it'll just sometimes start to have other bacteria present. A lot of times there's kind of a collection of kind of pathogenic bacteria like Klebsiella and um, Serratia. Those are not normal components of the microbiome, but suddenly they'll flare up. Usually they're maybe present at tiny, tiny numbers, um, you know, way less than 1%, but suddenly they'll be dominant. And so sometimes you can get bees in that state. One thing we've looked at is um, what happens when you treat bees, like bee colonies are exposed to different chemicals. Um, So antibiotics are sometimes used in beekeeping, just, you know, and um, another thing we've looked at is it's an herbicide, um, glyphosate. It's the most used herbicide in the world. And both of those have very strong impacts on the microbiota of bees um, because they're toxic to bacteria, both of them. And so so they will really disrupt the communities. And so in agriculture, sometimes bees are exposed to these things. And those are situations where they will have you know, really disrupted microbiota composition and it has effects on the bees. Even after, uh, let's say, the winter and the bees are hibernating, their microbiome is the same? Or and I know that, that people that raise pollinator bees, they'll keep them in like fridges at 40 some odd degrees. And yeah. then they, I guess they warm them up and they bring them back to life. But has anyone looked you know, during a cold period or after that if the microbiome is the same? There's been a little bit. We haven't done that very much, but that would be interesting to do. Like, we're here in Texas, and so pretty much it gets warm enough all winter for the bees to fly outside now and then at least because 55 degrees Fahrenheit and higher, they'll, they can fly around. And so one interesting thing about honeybee workers is they don't defecate in the hive. And so um, in cold places, they're sitting inside the hive all winter long, you know, covered with snow, and they're holding it in. And um, and I, the microbiome does shift a little bit. I mean, they have a very, you know, full rectum. And, you know, the whole gut physiology is affected. And there are some studies, there's sort of shifts in the proportions of species. Um, They still mostly maintain a similar species um, set, but some of them might become more more numerous and others decline a little bit. Okay. So what fermentation do you want to do now to figure out more about bee microbiomes? Like what's, what things do you have going on? What hypotheses or experiments are you working on? Well, lately we've actually gotten kind of interested in actually practical things that might come out of this, you know, things that might help bees. And um, one interest is, you know, can we devise like a kind of a cocktail of healthy bacteria that might help help bees who might have been exposed to stress or different chemicals? It might help them go get back to normal. Or like you said, after like people who grow bees for pollination after the bees have been shipped or subjected to stressful conditions. Um, can we give, can we use these bacteria to help the bees, you know, sort of become healthy and active again? So we've been playing around with just compositions of, you know, sets of bacteria that we can give to the bees. And then a little farther out, 
is engin- actually engineering these bacteria. So we, we have engineered, that means changing them genetically. So genetic and, you know, genetic modification of the bacteria. We've actually put, we've taken advantage of a particular pathway that's in bees and, and other, other animals and plants that called the RNA interference pathway. So it's, Basically, we can give a, a given RNA molecule to the bee that will cause it to attack, say, a, a virus. So we, we've done this um, for the, the major virus that's in bees, the um, deformed wing virus. It's an RNA virus. And, okay. bees, and so we basically could engineer the bacteria to kind of, it's almost like a vaccine or a, you know, stimulating the immune system of the bee to be ready to attack that virus. And it actually works. We, but so far, we've only done it in the lab. Um, so, you know, whether it's a practical thing outdoors is not yet clear. Um, again, has anyone looked at the microbiome of the varroa mites, varroa um, structure? Maybe there's a, a key there in one of the microbes that is in it, if yeah, there yeah. is. And I, I, don't, that way. I don't think anyone has, actually. We haven't, and I don't know anything on that. Some mites have very little microbiome. I mean, things that feed on fluids from other organisms sometimes have very minimal microbiomes in, in terms of at least the gut microbiome. But I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think anyone's looked at that. That would be, that would be worth doing. Okay. You mentioned in the beginning of the interview, you also work with the aphids. Yeah. I would guess aphid, aphids and ants kind of are, are bedfellows, right? Or yeah. Where do aphids yeah. tend to be? Yeah. Some aphids. Yeah. So, I mean, I've actually worked on aphids much longer than on bees. And so, and again, though, I work on bacteria that live in aphids and um, aphids as a, Bees are actually very smart insects. They can fly around, find their nest, do all kinds of complicated behaviors. Aphids are not as smart. (laughs) They're kind of almost like the plant. But aphids contain a different kind of um, microbial association. And it's so they have these intracellular, very specialized bacteria. So every aphid has this one kind of bacterium called Buchnera. And it's, it's just one. At the dawn of aphids, which is like 150 million years ago, um, so back when the dinosaurs roamed, basically they gained this endosymbiotic bacterium and it has lived in them ever since. So 150 million years and it's passed on when the aphids reproduce. So um, when the mother aphids give birth, their daughters get it. And so it's passed on through the maternal line. And um, it's just like mitochondria, if you know how those are passed on. So basically you get them from your mother, come with the egg and they're passed on for millions of years and basically through the maternal line. And originally, mitochondria were bacteria. So Buchnera is just kind of a more recent, it's very similar in many ways, but it's still more, its machinery is still more like a real bacterium. It still makes all its own proteins and it has a, its genome is not as, it's reduced, but not as far as mitochondria genome. So, so it's got a lot of parallels. It's evolved with the host. So um, we've studied that for a long time, trying to understand how it works, how it, what it does in the aphids, and um, how it has evolved with them and has affected their evolution. Okay, well, yeah, what are you trying to figure out in regards to the aphids' microbiomes? Do they change, or are they very static like the bees are? Yeah, so aphids, um, they're interesting. They feed on phloem sap of plants. That's their exclusive diet. So they, they, they have these sort of syringe-like mouth parts. They inject it into the phloem cells of the plant. And then phloem's under positive pressure, so it comes through the aphid, and it's full of sugar and has amino acids and so on. So, and interestingly, things that feed on phloem sap or plant sap in general, they often have almost no gut microbiome. So their guts are pretty much sterile. 
it kind of makes sense because phloem sap is sterile and you know, it's a very clean thing to feed on. So you're not going to get many pathogens coming in through the diet um, when you feed on that. But so instead, they don't have a gut microbiome, but instead they have these intracellular bacteria that live inside special cells and that are part of the body. And most aphids, well, almost all aphids have this one called Buchnera. They all have this this same one that came from a single ancestor one time. Um, and of course, it's it's diversified along with aphids diversifying, but but still it all came from one ancestor. And then sometimes they have an, one or two additional symbionts. And so what it looks like is this main bacterium, that, which is called the primary symbiont, over time it sort of loses genes. It's sort of because of the because it is passed on from aphid to aphid and strictly clonal, it never can can never um, recombine with other bacteria. It loses genes and it never gets them back, right? So its genome is getting smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And so it's down to only about, I mean, some of them have as few as 400 genes, which is really close to your minimal um, smallest cellular genome known. Um, And so it's losing things. And what we think happens is sometimes it's become so decrepit and lost so many genes that it benefits the aphid, the host, to gain a new symbiont to kind of take over some of the jobs that the old symbiont is getting really bad at. So it's sort of like senescence, you know, it's getting worse and worse. Very specialized to serve the host, but it's kind of losing its capabilities. Oh, one thing um, you brought up that came to mind earlier is don't bees have a spermatheca? They could store sperm from yeah. what the males are called for a long time. Yeah, drones, yeah, yeah. So, um, has anyone looked in the spermatheca for microbes or, you know... A, I know like on the humans, they're not just in the gut. They're in many places. So I would think in bees, maybe they are as well. Yeah. I Yeah. So queens have the spermatheca and they can store sperm from the drones for several years. And, um, but I, again, I don't think anyone's looked at that for microbial, you know, associates there. So yeah, I don't Mm. think, I don't think that's been looked at. There's only been a few studies on queen queens. It's hard to get lots of queens. So people don't study them as much. But um, yeah. I don't think anyone's looked at that. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering. It might be an interesting place to look because of the uh, you know, the abilities of it to store things for a very long time. Right. That's why yeah, it is amazing that sperm can live like, you know, queens can live five years so, and keep reproducing huh. using the same little pot of sperm. So. Yeah. Have you looked at microbiomes of ants? I guess, you know, they culture aphids and they farm them and stuff and they hang right. out with them. So I guess it would make sense maybe to look at... Uh, and yeah, we, and ants and see if they share. Yeah, we haven't studied them, but um, some other people, some actually, one of my former students has studied ant microbiomes a lot, and um, and so they, you know, different ant groups really differ, and they don't, they, they never acquire the main symbiont of aphids. It's so specialized, it really stays in the aphid. It's it's like a mitochondria, and it's you know, it's pretty much not going to get out of there. But um, but um, like they do have microbiomes that are pretty interesting sometimes, and um, sometimes they also have. Um, kind of an intracellular symbiont that lives inside cells. And sometimes they just have a gut microbiome. And, and sometimes they have very specialized microbiomes that are involved in processing their food. So, you know, ants have very different, different groups of ants have very different diets. Some of them use a lot of nectar. Some of them feed, you know, on different sources. And so that seems to be linked to what kind of microbiome they have. Well, very good. What do you see as the future of uh, of this research? What are some of the big questions that you and other people are working on? Well, with the the aphid um, aphid symbiont work, 
One thing we're interested in is the symbiont is almost like an organelle. It's it's so specialized. It lives only within the cells. It can, it cannot be grown outside the host. Is one thing I didn't mention. So it's only living inside there. And one thing we wonder is as it evolves with the host. So you have a bacterium and then an animal host. Are there sort of totally new things that um, that evolve? And we've gotten interested in are there new protein complexes that involve both proteins of the of the symbiont and proteins of the host that interact together to make, say, a new structure or a novel, a novel thing, you know? So we know from mitochondria that there's that within cell, like our cells or yeast cells that might, the proteins that come from the mitochondria and from the host, they actually go together to form these sort of entities that, that require both genomes to contribute. Right. So we're, we're using the aphid system to kind of look at, a younger version of that because so the aphid symbiont has evolved more recently. It's not as far down that road of just being part of the cell, but it's still um, very, very close and has evolved millions of years with the host. So there could be some interesting sort of novel biochemical, you know, structures that are, that have evolved from this. Okay. Well, very good. Nancy, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, well, let's see. I have a web page at the university with many pub- publications on there. Some of them are written for a broad audience. That's so. That's University of Texas Nancy Moran. If you Google it, you'll find the web page and <laughs> various things on there about aphids and their symbionts and a lot of things about bees and their and their bacteria. So I think those are probably good sources. Just listed on there. Well, very good one, Nancy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's an interesting call. Good, good, y'all. Thanks a lot. That was fun. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.